Hello and welcome to a special series of Europe United podcasts focusing on the future of European integration. My name is Ken Sweeney and our discussion today will focus on the concept of European federalism. We'll be asking what do European federalists stand for and can you make a Europe work without federalism? With me are two guests to discuss such questions and I'm delighted to welcome Eileen O'Sullivan and Conor McArdle. Eileen is a member of the Board of Directors of the Pan-European Party Volt Europa and previously she was a candidate for the European elections in 2019 for Volt Germany. Connor studies human rights law at Queen's University Belfast and is an active member of Young Fine Gael. So welcome both of you to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Um, Eileen, I'd like to start off with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your party Volt and why the concept of a federal Europe is important to you? Hi there, thank you for having me, sure. Um, so my name's Eileen, I live in Frankfurt. Um, I'm a student and I've been part of Volt for two years now. Um, Volt is a pan-European movement and political party which was founded in 2017 by uh, three young Europeans that basically saw that nationalism and populism was rising in Europe and um, they no longer wanted politics to be only thought thought of from a sort of national perspective and um, ever since we've grown um, as a movement in Europe and we are present in all EU countries and have 14 legal parties. We have 12 members of local parliaments in Italy, Germany and Bulgaria and one MEP. And um, we call ourselves a pan-European movement because we sort of have a heavy emphasis on um, being a grassroots movement style. So we want to empower individuals to become active and be activists while also being able to participate in the political sphere. Um, and we, we want a federal Europe because we think that a Europe that acts together can, can solve our shared challenges that we face rather than always looking at it from a national perspective because that has proven to not solve a lot of the issues that we see such as uh, climate change and um, something that is very important to me is basically the, the asylum system or the lack of a functioning one that we have in the European Union. And why is it important to you in a personal way? Because I see that um, I personally was raised in Germany and I have an Irish father and a Turkish mother. And so to me, it was always a bit bizarre to have this concept where you have borders, not only geographically, but also in the minds of people. Um, and I think there's a, a large generation that is growing up that does not necessarily see these borders anymore and actually sees how helpful cooperation transnationally is and how much better we can work and how much more efficient we can be. Before I speak to Connor, I actually just noticed there that you talked about Volt being a pan-European party. I presume that is very different to, say, the EPP or the S&D in Europe. Yes. So we're not like a political, a European political group, but we're actually a party that is founded in national countries and started growing from there on. And we're now sort of trying to establish legal entities as political parties in all national countries simply because we cannot found a European party from scratch as such. So you have um, specific pre-requirements that you need to meet or preconditions that you need to meet in order to become a European party. So mm -hmm. we're going the route that we have to take, although we rather uh, found a European party from the get-go. Yeah. But apart from, say, the fact that you have parties in separate countries, I mean, they've all got the same name, but is, it a is the system that you're adopting and the system that you're using more or less the same as, say, Connor, for example, is, is a member of Fine Gael. So Fine Gael are in the EPP. So although all those parties have different names, 
they're all still members of the EPP. So are you guys doing the same thing except that you're kind of setting up sub-parties within, you know, national states and then hoping that you would form a block in the European Parliament? So it's quite different from that, actually, because Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is make an effort of establishing political parties that are all based on the same values and political program. So, for example, we have our mapping of policies, which is basically like the baseline of policies and what we want to achieve. Um, in a broader view and then we break that down within the national countries and what is needed the requirements and what kind of topics you need to sort of talk about more uh, than others and but we're still on the same line of policy so I think um, sorry to bring this up but I mean if you look at um, Orban's Fidesz is quite different from uh, Fine Gael for example I would say policy wise and so we want to avoid that and not go into such harsh compromises with regards to our values. Mm. Connor, you're coming from a very different but unique perspective on this and given that you've lived all your life in Northern Ireland which you know, has so many um, different fractured ways of it being governed and administrated over the last 50 years uh, what's your opinion on a federal Europe and is the idea of what many would describe as a European now I'm putting this in a bracket, super state is that appealing to you or in any way or is the system that the EPP use and therefore the system that your party, Fine Gael, use more acceptable? First of all, I would say I, I believe in federalism very strongly. I think I think it's it's a very good system. It works very very well. And you know, in the context of a more federal Europe, I don't have an issue with that. What I do have an issue with is in terms of political realities. Is you know there is no desire in Brussels at the moment for treaty change. You know, I think we have to work already. First of all, what we've already achieved in Europe and making the things that we already have work and work more effectively. You know, and my my experience growing up in Northern Ireland has showed to me. You know, there's nothing wrong with compromise you know compromise is not superficial Mm. and you know by taking your belief your opinion and by sharing it with another person and finding that common ground is ultimately how we move forward because for every person who believes in the federal europe there's someone who believes in the end of the european union so you're going to have to find that common ground where we can all move forward you know and i think some a mantra that i always talk about is perfection is the enemy of the good you know Mm. we could seek this perfect united states of europe you know we'd all love it but at the end of the day, could we actually achieve it without ultimately breaking up the union? And, that, and I think that's the problem as well. So I think, you know, there's a sense of realism there. And, you know, you can be incredibly pro-European as I am and as Fine Gael is and as the EPP is. But also ultimately accept that, that element of realism there, that the union needs to um, to move forward, to build in what it already has. But be cautious about these sort of um, very, very extreme lurches towards one area of its future. Hmm. rather than securing what we already have. But the thing is now, and Eile made a good point there about the process of, say, what the EPP adopted, that they have parties like Fine Gael, who, you know, in theory are, you know, conservative Christian democratic party, which what fits the EPP perspective. But yet they have, you know, a gay uh, second immigrant leader, you know. Um, and also then you have, as she said, Fidesz with uh, Victor Orban. So how does the EPP justify the fact that they've got such extremes within their parties and are they are they still you know relevant or is the idea that Eileen's putting together of a European party which is kind of following the general line and they all you know toe in with the with the liberal idea ideology how does Fine Gael's for example live with the fact that they have you know Fidesz in the same seats with them 
Well, yeah, listen, it's, it's something that's obviously, you know, we're, we're not happy with and we're not proud of. You know, the, the youth wing sent a, a letter uh, to EPP headquarters, the young Finnegan sent a letter asking for the expulsion of Fidesz from mm. uh, the EPP. And I think, you know, the EPP being in Fidesz, I think they're on probation at the moment or something. I'm not 100% sure of the actual um, the details of it. So I think, you know, there's moves towards it that we understand that it's not acceptable. But you're right. You know, it's, an, it's, an, it's an embarrassment, I think, as well. That you have the the the, the that that those uh, pan-European parties, as it were, the, the blocks that exist within the Parliament, parties don't ultimately give as much thought as they should as to how they end up in those blocks as well. And I think you see it by the sheer amount of parties that exist within yeah. the, Europe, the European spectrum and the the sheer limiting number that you have of um, parties or, or blocks that exist within the Parliament. You know, like. Are you telling me that the Fianna Fáil should be in the alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe? They've you switched. Know what I mean? Yeah, they've switched. Yeah, that was my so, question. That was going to be my next question. I mean, how does Fianna Fáil justify their move to Alde? They're certainly not a Liberal Party. When you look at, say, the internal vote that happened in the uh, repeal the eight referendum here in Ireland, I mean, a vast majority of people within the party voted against it. Oh, definitely. He had I mean, to pull the whip on that, didn't he? Yeah, and, and this is the thing as well, you know, like I, I think it, it, it does almost make a bit of a mockery of it, in my opinion, in that they think they can just jump from, from uh, grouping to grouping. And I think you sort of see that as well in that parties perhaps wouldn't give as much thought as they should to the groupings that exist in the European Parliament because the electorate at home particularly doesn't particularly like like if you stop the average Joe in the street, are they going to know that Finnick is in the European People's Party and that Fianna Fáil is in Aldi? No. You know what I mean? No, they so wouldn't. So this no. is the, and this is a sort of the key problem with the union in that it must try and engage with its citizens and it must try and engage with its citizens in a manner that reflects its democratic nature, which we know is there. Mm. But it's just about engaging them and understanding that these parties and groupings exist. And in terms of you know sharing a, a grouping and a party with a party you don't agree with fundamentally. Um, is going to be a fact of life in those very, very large groupings. And then you must sort of do what you can to understand that you fight for the values that exist within those groupings. And I think Fine Gael is doing that in terms of Fidesz and trying to shape the EPP to be mm-hmm. more progressive and a more um, a more successful entity as it moves forward. The thing is that I, I always wonder if it's good enough to say that you stay within a European party group because you're trying to fight for the values when there's someone obviously promoting um, a climate within a country that is that goes against human rights. And I fail to understand how that can be tolerated, um, whilst I still understand that surely you folks have the best intentions in mind. But I, I just I wish we were a bit more brave, I guess, with regards to the way we stand up for specific human rights and we say okay this is actually not acceptable we need to you know they actions need to follow and um, consequences need to follow from actions when orban allows specific things to happen and i mm. fail to see that and i find that i that's just that well, listen, my, like, like, my my uh, my, like my opinion of the thing is they should be expelled and suspended you know they, they, they stopped being a member of the european people's party a long time ago with the actions that that they Im- implemented but they're and, still you know, they're still important for the votes connor so, I mean, you know, is the EPP not playing a bit of a shrewd thing? And I put this question to the both of you. Is this not just, you know, everyday 
um, current situation in politics that compromise is key. I mean, we saw that last week. We saw it with the way that the budgetary systems was done. We saw it a couple of months ago in re- reference to getting this, the administration back up on running in Northern Ireland. So is Eileen's idea of politics not a bit naive and that the real politic is that you do get into bed with people that you don't like? I mean, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, perfect example. Yeah, well, I think they're, 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 you can overstate the value of compromise slightly. You know, like, like Fine Gael's position is very, very clear on this. You know, we called for both the senior party and the youth wing called for the expulsion of Orban from the EPP. Mm. You know, it's not as if our opinion isn't very clear on this. So I think you do run the risk of flouting compromise as an excuse. And there is no excuse for what's happening in Hungary, in my opinion. And I don't think the party makes any excuse. How do we change it within the EPP? And that, that, that's a problem as well and something that needs to be looked at. But I think in terms of, you know, engaging with these people, and it also talks about if you you have to engage with these people, but also ultimately respect your fundamental values. So so I think while I'm, I'm a massive proponent of compromise as well, I think you have to be cautious in terms of the... Um, the way in which you use that, you know? So Eileen, in reference to say, if you had say a Hungarian vault and over the say the next two or three years, it began to have an element similar to what's happening in Fidesz. How would vault deal with that if you had people elected in parliament for vault Hungary, say for example? So how, how would the actual, the large policy, sorry, the large party deal with that? Well, actually, since we've never had that kind of experience, I would have to, you know, guess how the procedure would be but for sure, I can imagine something that um, that that would be that we would have to get our um, conflict resolution body um, going for this specific issue and seeing how far our values and policies have been breached. If they have been, then I think I'm guessing and really this is just a guess on what this procedure could look like um, is that it could be put to our General Assembly, means our membership in Volt Europa. Um, and they could decide on whether they still deem this person a suitable representative for vault or not. But, you, but you'd have to admit that that is a very real possibility, given the fact that your party has got a very wide reach, very similar to EPP and so on. I'm not saying that you operate by the same systems, but, you know, you have the same kind of public perspective in a sense. And that's something that could happen in, in the near future. Sure. Yeah, sure. That could happen. I mean, we all, we're, we're, if we continue growing the way we are, we're going to be quite the big party and we're implementing all the governmental structures that we need right now in order to prevent that kind of thing from happening and from someone to sort of drift away from our policies. Um, But I think the danger is always there. However, I think we're doing a good job in trying to keep everyone together and um, Mm. aligned. Yeah, because one person's idea of federalism can be very different to another person's idea of federalism. Look at the United States, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're still having that debate within Vault 2 because quite consciously in our mapping of policies, do we have a vision of what a federal Europe would look like? But it's not cut down to the smallest detail hmm. simply because when we wrote it, we also said, you know, there are a lot of factors that can change within the next decades that will heavily influence the way that these, this, the appropriate federal Europe could look like. So that is definitely something that still needs to be discussed in the future. Yeah. OK, so I think what we'll do is we'll just move on a little bit from that because we could have a separate podcast discussion on those two to- that one topic alone. It's, it's brilliant to hear um, you guys getting into such depth. Um, but I want to ask you, Eileen, first about the European Parliament and the Lisbon Treaty. The Lisbon Treaty looks a lot like a constitution. So isn't Europe already federal? And why aren't federalists happy with the current, say, treaty system? So 
the European Union is most definitely not federal. <laughs> I think the Lisbon Treaty helped in um, aligning aligning the countries a little more and also strength, strengthening the European Parliament. However, uh, we still have massive discrepancies. Um, if you look at the democratic processes, um, for example, the ones that we were faced with last year when we were running for the European elections, um, is that, for example, in Italy, we needed 150,000 notarized signatures to actually run at all as a political party. And in in France, we needed 800,000 euros to pay for uh, ballot papers that we had to pay for ourselves. Right. And whilst in Germany, we needed 4,000 signatures that we could just collect on the street, you know. So there's I think in Ireland, you only need 500 signatures. Is that my correct in that, Connor? For the Republic of Ireland to be a political party, it's only 500? Okay, I, I'm talking about 120 euro. Yeah, um, I think 500. <laughs> no, I think it's 500 anyway. Sorry, go on, Eileen, sorry. Yeah, but like that's sort of the precondition that you have that you have in different countries that are vastly different mm-hmm. um and that in my opinion you know 150,000 notarized signatures in Italy no party in Italy has ever been able to fulfill that condition okay. and so i wonder like is that's not very democratic is it so i think that's something where we can very clearly see that the eu is definitely not but um, i suppose that's federal. the key of compromise isn't it isn't, isn't that what the european union is all about it's all about compromising and allowing all these systems to work as best they can. So what you're trying to say is that in order for even for you guys to establish the concept of federalism as a viable option, something needs to change immediately. I think, I think, I guess what I was trying to say is that when we look at the understanding of the national member states of Mm. what um, democratic participation for political parties is, that's very different. And I think if we were to live in a federal Europe, then that would have to be something that would be aligned most definitely. Connor, Brian Hayes, when he was a MEP there um, a few years ago, we talked to him uh, in an interview and he said that he was a man of confederalism. So if we don't want federalism, then we're stuck with intergovernment negotiation. And uh, we've all seen what's ha- how that worked out for the last couple of months as well. Um, we've seen it even last week when, you know, the last hour, the last very last hour in classic European fashion, they drew up a plan. And then still it's hitting a brick wall in the parliament itself. So um, how is it? How is that a defensible model for Europe? And uh, say, if you look at even the UN, uh, works that way, and it never seems to get anything done. So, can you can you say that you know intergovernmental negotiation is still a good thing at the moment? Is it still the best way to do it? Well, listen, it, it's that paradox of the European Union, and it's criticised for being an all-powerful uh, super state, and at the same time, it's ridiculed for only being coming together by heads of state. I think in terms of Lisbon, actually, Lisbon is it has so much scope that still needs to be implemented. You know, you look at the you look at the Lisbon Treaty and you read through it and you see the level of, of power that is given to Europe and that hasn't been achieved and hasn't been utilised. And you know, so I think that there, there's if we could look at Lisbon, I I think treaty change at this moment in time is not going to happen. And I think that's just an unfortunate reality, you know? Yeah. I think what we need to do is, is solidify what we have in terms of Lisbon and Nice, etc., and turn that into something that reflects those ideals and goals. In terms of actually, you know, the, 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 the intergovernmental aspect of it as well, I think that is still just a nature of states, um, states where the power resides within states as well. You know, I, I, and to be honest, I don't think it, 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 it fails. 
I think it succeeds quite a lot of the time. And, you know, the fact that that meeting went on for hours and, and hours and days is a positive thing because it shows that they're actually discussing very, very concrete actions that would have real effects that thus naturally deserve um, strong uh, conversation and debates and arguments. And, you know, it, 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 it's a concrete package that ultimately is, is comp- compromisable to both all sides, you know? Mm. Like you have some very entrenched positions there that were respected and they managed to find a way out of it. And yes, it can be ridiculed for being half-assed or half-baked or whatever it is, but it continues to be a very, very clear movement forward and a clear response from Europe for the first time in a long time to a clear and mounting challenge. So I think, you know, and listen, I think the comparable to the UN is a bit unfair. You know, the, the UN and the European Union are, are incredibly different. You know, the, 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 the level of sovereignty that nation states have given to Europe already compared to, um, you know, sovereignty that's given to the UN isn't comparable. You know, I think, you know, once you have that intergovernmental um a conversation that exists you ultimately will get clear results you know uh you so what you're saying is that there is the idea that this complete um philosophy of like compromise 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 is what's required now because again we're going back to this real politic aren't we we're looking at this idea where politics at the moment is the only way to do it in a democratic sense but um eileen i mean in terms of say what connor was just saying there how would volt europa for example deal with the current way that they negotiated the budget i mean would would you guys look at that differently would you have a different idea of going into that I think it is quite clear that the heads of state heavily negotiated on behalf of their nations and not of the European citizens. And that is sort of the perspective that we're obviously not trying to um, support as such. Like we Mm -hmm. want for all the countries to get together and sort of um, see the unity that we need to have in order to be a successful European Union and then like not have the so-called frugal cut funding in research and health and rural development like that to me doesn't make a lot of sense. I think there's an issue that if we have the heads of state come together and sit down and try to figure out a deal for European citizens, what they do is they try to figure out a deal that will make them look best in their national countries. But just to jump in on that, isn't that that not their job? I mean, they are elected representatives of their country. And does it not speak volumes for the way generally European people feel? That there is still a a heavy element of nationalist pride and they want their country to do well? Um, I think that it's fair enough to say that. And I think it's fair enough to say that a head of state obviously has the obligation to support the national interest. However, I think that there's also something to be said, and in my opinion, that's a very important point about how we can actually create unity within Europe, because that actually will help the national country too. Mm. So what we're doing is that we're, we're sort of expecting for national leaders to only look at their national countries and what they need when actually all of us can profit more if our national leaders were actually mm. to really try and find a compromise, and I'm all for compromise, actually find a compromise that will work for everyone and not just the people within their borders. And I think we can actually expect from our European leaders to, you know, say that they also would appreciate a bit more uh, Europeanness and unity um, within that. And whatever it takes doesn't mean what nations allow, and that is what happened, yeah. in my opinion. If I could jump in there, I think, you know, you're, you're going to have um, representatives of an area do what's best for that area, be that even in member states, you know, mm. like I'm sure as as any Irish person will know, 
did, did the local TD get the road built yep. or, you know, has he got a seat in cabinet? So I think from nation states up to the European level, you're going to have people who want to look after their own and look after the people that elected them and represent them, but also be conscientious of the wider grouping. And I think that exists within that intergovernmental structure. And bear in mind, that's only one element of the European democratic structure as well. Mm. And I think, you know, if you do get a deal that's good for your own citizens, you're ultimately getting a deal that's good for European citizens as well. And I think the nature of Europe in that, you know, Europe is not a United States of Europe. It is not a level playing field in terms of economies, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of structures. So each country has to work hard to try and get what's best for their citizens. And naturally that leads to those hard debates. So I think, you know, you'll find that in any democracy anywhere in the world, be it a small nation state or be it a supranational institution such as the European Union. So I don't see... Um, there is negatives to that, but there also is positives as well, you know? Yeah, I, I think if you had um, a majority vote, then that would be right. But if we're talking about unanimity, as we are, then I think that that's not right, because national countries can just block everyone else's interests until their own are actually brought through. And so I think that I, I don't necessarily think that that's quite right. I think we need to look at the bigger picture and how it actually these decisions are made. If we can just move on then, say, because we're actually going to talk about something that's related to what happened last week. We, we look at a federal country. So the central government collects federal taxes. Now, tax is always a huge question in, in the European Union because some people say that uh, certain countries get you know unfair tax breaks and so on. But you, you obviously, because so you don't see the the European Union collecting taxes. Does the EU need to tax its citizens? And if so, for what purpose? Um, does the EU need to tax its citizens? I say the EU sort of already taxes citizens through nation states. Um, I think if you had this, if you suddenly, but it's not a central. System, yeah, I, I, I think if the EU began to tax its systems, it would be one of the ultimate own goals in terms of European citizen relations you've seen in a long time. You know, if you get your pay packet at the end of the day and it says Brussels tax, you know what I mean? It's not going to go down very well. And I think, you know, tax is, is a very closely guarded competency of member states and not because it just allows member states to... Um, undercut their fellow member states rather it allows member states to reflect their different types of economies you know you know you have economies in europe that are ultimately high tax and that reflects the economies that they think is best for their nation ireland is a low tax economy because we want to attract foreign direct investment and it is it is something that that that, that we um that we work hard towards attracting those foreign direct investments and ultimately um, encouraging a, an environment that is welcoming to them. And, you know, in terms of the Apple the Apple case, which is wrongly called an Apple tax case, is an Apple uh, state aid case, which which the European Commission accused Ireland of, of state aid, which was, was fundamentally wrong in terms of what the court ruled as well. So I think, you know, tax... Um, Tax is seen as this bogeyman of Europe of the last sort of great bastion we can break down. But we, we, we have a monetary union, but we don't have a fiscal union, you know? And I think there's a lot there's a lot more fiscally that you can do before you look at tax. And tax is part of it, yes. But I think tax ultimately reflects the the imbalance that continues to exist within European economies. And to set a basic rate of tax across Europe it, 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 it is foolish because it does not understand those fundamental differences that exist. Eileen, can Volt work with a with a uh, European tax system? So obviously, um, we we want a European carbon tax. Uh, we want a baseline corporate tax. And um, whilst surely we do have different taxing systems and um, different fiscal systems within the European Union, that doesn't mean that you can't adjust them. 
And so I think as long as we do not have a federal Europe, we definitely do have to adjust them because we need to ensure fair competition um, rather than tax havens, as we as as Connor just said, we have in Ireland and also in Malta and Luxembourg and Cyprus. And so um, we do want that. And yeah, I think overall, we what we need to look at is in order to avoid these kind of tax havens, we also need to support actually low and middle income groups and also small and medium enterprises and sort of strengthen them. And actually also, we, as a European Union, we have the advantage that, for example, with digital companies, we can actually see where they make their profits and tax them from there. But we're not doing that currently, as we see with the Apple case. Right. Can I come in there? Ireland's not a tax haven. We're, 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 we're a country that has a low rate of tax. That, that's really about it. You know, I think also some of the more questionable tax methods that existed in the early 2000s have been cleaned up by the Irish government in the past number of years. You know, what something that goes hand in hand with attracting, attracting foreign direct investment is good standing in terms of your, your economic affairs. And, you know, the, the notorious um, the notorious loopholes, for example, the double Dutch trick in terms of property assets and, um, you know, intellectual property, etc., has been closed by the Irish government for a long time. And, and it's been closed for the past 10 years. So, so I think I think it's unfair to call Ireland a tax haven. I'd say we have a low corporation of corporate tax and we are attractive to foreign direct investment. But is the problem not the fact that Ireland is kind of adjusting its system to kind of work within the European model of industry? Is the problem at a higher level where, and this might work in a federal system, in that where you would have investment coming into Europe and if you had a federal Europe, that Europe would look at who needs that investment the most and assign it to that particular region or area? Well, you know, you argue that they, that they already do that, but I think you know, in terms of you know, you look at the the, the measures and scales in which uh, certain countries that need need funding the most will get it. Mm. But in terms of trying to fundamentally micromanage an economy like that, it, it is virtually impossible. You know, but would People you not can... say though that somebody like Jeff Bezos is there, definitely not micromanaging his organization or industry? So you I mean we're talking about we're talking about the massive farm we're talking about massive companies who come to Europe and have an opportunity to say okay we're going to open a branch in Poland because it's a lot cheaper in terms of labor in regards to say opening it in Ireland which wouldn't be uh, cheap in terms of yeah labor. but like say if say if Amazon was looking at Europe right and 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 they they see um it has a standard rate of corporation tax across the entire European Union what what's what stops them from just going to you know. To that 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 central bubble that exists between Brussels, Paris, and, and you know, and, and throughout Central Europe, you know, there no, you know, Ireland is is in a unique position in that we have to make ourselves attractive in some other way. That we don't exist in those areas that have really strong infrastructure, that have really strong connections to to industry and trade. So we have to find a niche area to to do that. And I think that's quite a healthy functioning economy that can do that. But if you begin to have a flat rate of corporation tax, you're just going to continue to concentrate those successful businesses in areas that already have successful businesses and growth. And you're going to, um, you know, almost uh, push the regions further away. So I think that, that that's the problem with, with a central rate of corporation tax in that it just makes the, the, the richer countries richer and the poorer countries cannot find a niche area in which they can innovate and try to find a way to beef up public, their public finances. No, like how, uh, in your opinion, do you think that actually Apple being, I guess, um, let down this easily, I will call it, <laughs> um, is actually helping the Irish economy in such as how is it helping the Irish people? Because I mean, just because Apple is there doesn't mean that they are actually creating jobs for those who are unemployed, right? 
Well, I, I think, you know, you look at the rate of income tax that comes into the Irish exchequer, or not income tax, sorry, apologies, the rate of corporate tax that comes into the Irish exchequer is the in the billions, you know? And the, the, the fundamental thing is, I would have loved to have dipped into this imaginary Apple money that was in an air school account, in which a lot of opposition parties were calling for, let's spend the Apple money, let, let's spend it right now. That money wasn't Ireland's to begin with. It was not there to begin with. It was, it was a figure that was given ultimately... Um, by, by the court that was held and will ultimately go back to Apple bearing no appeal. And I think if you look at it this way, if Ireland begins to, if Ireland right now ramped up corporation tax and a couple of the big, big companies began to leave, you would have a high rate of corporation tax, but you'd have nobody to tax. So it, it is it is a necessary um, compromise to understand that a low rate of corporation tax attracts a lot of a lot of those companies and those companies also attract each other. Listen, the thing about taxes, you know, it's this sort of myth that Ireland doesn't want to tax those companies. We do tax them and we get billions every year from the uh, into the exchequer from taxing those large amount of companies that feel comfortable and happy and are attracted to this country. And those billions go to serving the citizens of Ireland as well. And, you know, if we did raise the rate of corporation tax, well, then those countries would look at somewhere else and just pop over the water to England or pop over the water to France. So we have to look at the way in which, yes, you know, we would like to have more coming into the exchequer. But ultimately, we have a, co a competitive rate of corporation tax that attracts these companies and attracts these companies that ultimately means we can tax them and then we can put that money back into serving mm -hmm. the citizens of Ireland. So I, I think that's um, a very Irish view on um, being pro-European because obviously um, having these tax advantages for certain multinational companies gives Ireland, for example, uh, yeah, an advantage and harms competition within the European Union. So if we say we're pro-European, we can't just look at it from an Irish perspective. And aside from that, um, Ireland is now missing out on 14 billion euros. And I think um, the tax, if you want to call it that, that, that Apple has to pay right now is by far not um, as high as it could have been. And it should have been in order to create a fair competition in the European Union and benefit Ireland um, as a country and its citizens. I mean, I want to just bring in something here that might be connected slightly to the idea that we're just discussing here, because, again, these are fantastic um, discussions and we could actually do a separate podcast on these issues and we may go back to these. So I, I do want to say thanks to both of you for, for bringing all these issues up because they will. Um, our team is doing, I'm sure, taking notes and they will be able to come back to us and we may be able to look at separate podcasts in relation to these things. Because let's face it, everybody, they are huge issues that, you know, we're only bringing to the fore in a very small way. So, I mean, there's a lot to go with and there's a lot to take in. But I just want to move on to the idea. Again, this is something that can move in with this idea that of where do we assign industry and, and what about corporate tax in, in areas? I mean, we want to discuss, discuss regionalism. I'll start off with you, Eileen, because obviously I think a lot of federalists are also regionalists. Now, not every federalist is a regionalist, but this does mean that they do want to break up the bigger nations and they want to uh, incorporate these smaller regional states, some based on traditional historical lines, um, like, for example, making Catalonia a European state, for example. But it can also mean joining smaller countries together, like Ireland and Northern Ireland, for example. Now, what would um, obviously this is a 50-50 personal question, and obviously I wouldn't be interested in knowing what is the general idea. I'm sure you spoke to a lot of people in your party about this. Can Europe work when some countries are so much bigger than others? I think it can if we have the right structures in place. However, I think if we're looking at a, um, Europe, a federal Europe that is broken up into regions, then I think that definitely has to be an effort that comes from the citizens. 
Um, and I don't think that anyone can just say that we're going to break up specific places, obviously. But I think, yeah, I guess that's also why I said before that we're leaving that door open as to how actually um, it will work with its details. Because I mean, a regional Europe, I understand what makes it attractive. And I personally have to say that I'm I don't really mind too much at this stage because I don't think we're quite there yet where we need to have this conversation realistically. Because there are still some so, countries... Sorry, that's an unsatisfactory... No, no, that's fine. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people would be on the fence about it because, first of all, they probably don't realise the implications of that. That they probably wouldn't think that, you know, on a whim, they might say, for example, a lot of people in the UK, for example, are calling for the breakup of the UK. But would people really want it at the end of the day when they're, you know, their life changes in many respects? So, Connor, you have experienced this because obviously it's not a huge thing, but there are some people saying a good compromise for the future of Ireland, the island of Ireland, is a, is a, is a federal island. So, so you know, what, what would be your opinion on this? Well, look, I agree that I don't think it's the time to really talk about, you know, a federal structure with those sort of small sort of uh, small states that we see on maps. Mm. I mean, we could be looking I agree at... agree with that. Um, in terms of, you know... You have to okay. I say we could be looking at a new Holy Roman Empire, for example. Yeah, but like, you know, and I think you have to be very careful when, when you look at these, you know, because, you know, for, for this notion that, Ireland's problems and Brexit's problems will be solved if Ireland simply joins um, the Republic. It, it ignores, um, you know, the, the 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 years and the the fundamental difficulties that are going to exist with this process. You know, United Ireland is going to take a very very long time, and its form in which um, it takes is ultimately going to be crafted by its citizens. Yeah, so I think Andy Kenny, when he when he was in Europe, he um he achieved quite a lot in terms of ensuring that Ireland, um, if there was a reunification of Ireland, that Northern Ireland would automatically join the European Union in a similar way to East yeah. Germany with the reunification of Germany. So I think you know th- that thought process is always there in terms of reunification and in terms mm-hmm. of you know states um changing and molding. I think we have to very much acknowledge the cautious nature that we approach redrawing lines on maps and redrawing boundaries and regions because they, they exist within the European mind, the European consciousness at a very, very deep fundamental level. You know, federalism doesn't work if a nation does not feel content within itself, you know, and I think we have to look at that and we have to look at the manner in which federalism can be used as a very effective tool as it's as it has been done before and as it's done in mem- many European states as well, such as Germany. There's many aspects as well that you must be cautious about as well, especially in terms of Europe. Eileen, um, just um, I want to go to this question about security. Now, we, we know that there's a lot of views on a European military, so we're not going to get down that road because that's that's another huge debate. <laughs> um, but what I would like to do is talk about the fact that, that domestic threats and criminals run across borders with impunity within the European Union. What are your views on creating, say, something like an FBI, a Federal Bureau of Investigation? Um, well, we we support the unification of national police intelligence and cybersecurity services. Um, and what we definitely want is to have Europol's competences be extended. So we think that uh, the European police agencies should have more cooperation and information should be shared in order to actually, you know, combat cross-border crime and um, terrorism and especially cybersecurity. So something that Europol, for example, would have to look at um, is actually extending basically their cybersecurity capabilities and not have member states have their own, if they have one, cybersecurity sort of body within 
within their governments, but actually to have them unify and have a common European cybersecurity um, sort of agency. Mm. Connor, European FBI, little special office there in Dublin and a few lads turning up with that European Union on the badge when things get a bit yeah. rough. Uh, like I completely agree with what Eileen said there. I think, you know, Europol exists as an entity, but it has no executive powers. And, you know, Europol officers can't arrest anybody, you know. They suppose you, you, could, you could walk into Europol office and, like, you know, steal their computer and, you know, they legally couldn't list you, you know what I mean? It would have to be, they'd have to call the national, the, the, the police in, in the country. And they can't act without agreement from, you know, member state police forces. So it does limit their ability and their time and their speed and efficiency. Mm. So I think, you know, you should look at giving Europol more competent executive powers. And I, I think that's one of those things that you look at that you can do under existing structures without treaty reform, you know? Right. So I've got one more question to ask. Um, the US is federal. Germany is federal. Canada is federal. There are some nations around the world that kind of look like they're federal states. Yet they're all very different systems. Is it useful to look around the world for ideas for Europe's future? This is actually one of the things that we as Bold continuously do is actually look for best practices. So we don't have to invent something that has already been invented before or try out something that has already been tried out before. So most necessarily do we have to look at all the sort of federal um, institutions that we have and look at what is working well, what is not working well, and then um, pull our information that we already have and use it for, for ourselves in order to be- develop a really good model of a federal Europe. So definitely we have to look at those. So things. Vault is open to ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. Connor, the cradle of civilization is Europe, right? We should be able to just reinvent the wheel and just do it on our own. So what do you think of that? Or do you think we need to look at other systems that have worked and say, that's a good idea? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Europe, we, we, we have to, first of all, look and be very proud of what we've achieved already. You know, the European project is the world's greatest peace project. It has dramatically improved the lives of European citizens for the past 30, 40, 50 years. So I think we, we, we have to look at that and recognize our achievements and be bold about the future. And recognize that we can look at other countries, learn from other countries, of course, but understand that we have created a unique European solution to European issues and be bold and move forward to find more creative issues and creative systems that work towards us. And that means combining different uh, different systems and different functions that suit this place very much so rather than trying to borrow directly from other nation states or directly from other countries throughout the world mm, so it's baby steps really guys well I, I wouldn't say baby steps you know i think you know what, what what's happened in the past number of months in europe has been a good leap forward mm. but it's going to be slowly but surely incremental change and don't underestimate the manner of which incremental change you know if you take baby steps for the past 60 years you have come quite a bit no, I, I just I, th- I think we've a bit of, we've a bit of a, a problem of playing ourselves down in Europe sometimes and, and not looking at what we've achieved and not using that a, a, as inspiration and as as a way of looking confidently to the future. Eileen, they say that the, you know the the federalist system or the federalist concept or ideology, whatever it is being labelled, is a, is a case of being very slowly implemented. Do you still think is Vault moving in a, at a different pace? I. I will sound <laughs> sound a bit arrogant here, but I think Volt is ahead of our time, um, to be honest, because I think a federal Europe is very realistic. Um, however, we need to speed up this process, in my opinion, because now we are facing questions that we cannot answer on a national level, and right. we continue to do so. And I think right now is the time where we have to be more bold 
and you know we cannot we can't we need to stop finding excuses for constantly holding ourselves back and only looking at national possibilities and borders and we need to as connor said we need to become creative yes we have to but we have to do that in a unified manner and that doesn't mean that walking into a room with your own agenda but actually walking into the room and looking at what europe's best agenda could be and trying to implement that and that's why i think we need european parties and that's why i think we're ahead of our times guys thanks very much um it's been a really great conversation I just want to say, uh, you know, thanks to the team, uh, Yuso and Col, who are yeah, Europe United. Uh, they've been working behind the, the scenes here. And uh, what I think what we'll do is we will work with a couple of podcasts and follow up on some of the brilliant um, answers that we got from you guys and see where we can go with that. Because obviously this is a huge conversation. We can even, you know, we, the conversation we like to do is about the future of Europe and the future of European integration. So we're looking, you know, federalism is just a part of it. I'm sure there's lots of people who have different other, other different different ideas but i want to thank you both for joining us today and um eileen just before we sign off can you tell me a little bit about how people can find out more about uh, volt so if you want to join volt or have a look at um more of our visions and what we want to do and what we plan on doing and what we're up to currently um you can visit VaultEuropa.org or our social media channels on facebook on twitter instagram and linkedin and obviously, just to reiterate, there you people can join at a regional level. There's there's regional setups all over Europe. Yes, absolutely. We're everywhere in Europe, and you can join and join a local team. And if there's no local team yet, you can participate in building a local team yourself. Cool. And Connor, of course, you're a member of Young Finnegale. How's that going? I mean, believe you've just set up a new branch in Belfast, isn't that right? Yeah, we're nearly over a year old now. It's going quite well. And I think, you know, the branch is um, slowly but surely getting traction in the north. And we're there in, 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 a, in a manner in which is not to, you know, to 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 impose ourselves, but rather to learn, to listen and to engage with all communities. And if you'd like to get involved in Fine Gael or Young Fine Gael, you can you can find our website, uh, finnegale.ie. And also um, we are, we would say, the most pro-European party in Ireland. Um, and our, tra- our track record shows that. Right, great. Well, on that note, guys, we'll say we'll say thank you very much. <laughs> it's a grand little plug there. <laughs> we'll, say, <laughs> we'll say thank you very much to both of you. My guests were Eileen O'Sullivan from Vault uh, Europa and Conor McArdle from Young Fine Gael. We'll see you real soon. But if you want to check us out, we are at europeunited.eu. And we're also on all the media platforms, Twitter, Facebook and all that, at also europeunitedeu. So we'll see you real soon, hopefully. Take care of yourselves, guys. Bye-bye.